sun shines bright in those hills far away Where back in my childhood I'd wander and play And when I think about it now, it all seemed just like a dream Sitting on the front porch with my granny breaking beans Hey y'all, and welcome back to Breaking Beans, the Kentucky food and farm story hosted by Community Farm Alliance. My name is Shelby Wheeler, and this month we're going to be hearing from Sarah Barney from Among the Oaks Herb Farm in Beattyville, Kentucky. Sarah is a researcher turned homesteading farmer, applying her knowledge to raise medicinal herbs, ducks, and chickens. Inspired by the farms they visited while traveling and doing research in Latin America, Indonesia, and beyond, Sarah and her partner Chris started Among the Oaks Farm in Beattyville, which is about an hour outside of Lexington where they grew up. Sarah's work is deeply rooted in healing. This extends from herself to her community and the land she's on. Skip ahead to around the 20 minute mark to hear Sarah's case for ducks being the best bird for small farms. My name is Sarah Barney, 28 years old, and I live in Beattyville, Kentucky. And what do you do in Beattyville, Kentucky? I, along with my husband, run a organic medicinal herb farm. How did you end up doing, why did you choose medicinal herbs? I um, knew that I wanted to start a farm, and I've, I've done a lot of things in the farming space before I started farming, I guess. I started as a researcher, as an undergraduate, and then from there, I worked as a lab manager in a lab that studied pollination ecology, not all on farms, but on some farms. And I did a lot of kind of gigs doing field work different places, a lot of them on farms, and a lot of them internationally as well. I spent a fair bit of time in Latin America working on farms, and that kind of led me to studying agroforestry, which is kind of my passion and something I really nerd out about. And I ended up studying um, agroecology, agroforestry more or less, um, at the University of Michigan and doing a thesis there um, studying hummingbirds and insect biocontrol on coffee farms. And so I thought I was going to keep doing research forever and I was kind of pursuing that career. but. I eventually just accepted that the part of farming that I really, or the part of research that I really liked the most was actually being on farms and being outside and using my hands and stuff like that. And so when I finished my um, thesis, my master's program in, what, that January 2019, I decided that I was going to move back to Kentucky and start farming. And I had always thought I would do like a vegetable market garden type thing with the CSA. And I found somebody who let me use their farm as like an incubator farm last year. And I was growing vegetables and stuff like that. Um, and I started growing some herbs last year. I've been interested in herbs, mostly foraging uh, for a long time. And I've just been learning more and more about their medicinal properties and I guess um, I guess that has really fascinated me because I feel like it's something that's all around us that we don't really know about anymore. It's like a lost knowledge and art. 
Um, <clears throat> and so as, as I was learning about these medicinal plants, I realized, like, these things are in my front yard in the city, you know? Um, and I just became kind of obsessed with learning how to identify plants and figuring out what you can use them for, things like that. And so while I was growing vegetables last year, I just, um, I lived in this little off-grid cabin in Jackson County. And so I didn't have like internet or anything really um, to preoccupy me. And so I spent all my time outside identifying plants and you know foraging and wildcrafting and stuff like that. And I started kind of researching more about um, that kind of market space as far as um, what herbalists are doing and people that make herbal products and like herbal supplement industry and stuff like that. And realized that there was this um, huge gap in the demand and what was available to people that wanted herbs. Um, and so I guess I was having a lot of challenges with vegetables too because, you know, I mean, at farming, especially as a beginning farmer, it's hard no matter what, but uh, the place I was farming, I didn't live there, and actually nobody lived there, and it was really remote, and so I was having all these problems with animals, like eating everything that was growing, like raccoons, like destroyed every single corn plant. I, I planted peas and beans at least like 10 times, and every time they came up, like deer or rabbits or something would come and eat them. And and then it was like I was trying to network with restaurants and stuff like that and figure out where to like take my produce. And it's really complicated because I lived really remotely. And there was there was definitely demand for it, but just a matter of like the logistics of getting it where it needed to go, when I needed to harvest it, and everything like that was really hard. So then I guess that's when kind of the light bulb went off that you know I could be growing medicinal herbs instead there's this huge need for them and it kind of um, overcomes some of those problems I think of farming really rurally especially in Appalachia um, and I can talk more about that because I think that I think that medicinal herbs have a lot of potential actually as um, kind of a, a partial replacement for tobacco farming and yeah, I definitely want to hear more about that here in a bit. It sounds like you haven't had the, or you didn't have the easiest go of it after your transition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you describe a little bit what, so it seems like you've been on your farm for about a year now, is that right? Um, I'm on my current farm that we own since January of this year. Okay, wow. Okay, so pretty new on the land. Um, yeah. You decided that you wanted to do mostly herbs. So what does your farming operation look like now? Yeah. So we're right um, in Beattyville. And our farm is... Okay, so we're right in Beattyville and along the North Fork of the Kentucky River. So we have about 10 acres of bottom land that's just like a strip along the river. And 
the river borders up on one side and the other side, it just goes straight up, um, you know, really forested mountainside. So we have, um, we live in an RV on the bottom land and that's where we're doing all of our production at the moment. We have about a half acre in production and the rest of that space, um, we're trying to regrow like native meadow and do some plantings to kind of manage that actually for uh, wild crafting. And then we have maybe another acre that we're planting or we've been planting um, an orchard and that's where we keep our chickens and ducks um, in that section. So the, um, the herb farming is Basically, we have kind of two different ways that we're doing it. We have raised beds um, where we grow annual herbs like chamomile and calendula and pulsi or holy basil, things like that. And then the bulk of our production is in um, using alley cropping. So we are been really fortunate to we're partnering with um, a nonprofit organization, Appalachian Sustainable Development, based in Virginia, and they're doing some research on growing medicinal herbs both in forest and um, on old like tobacco land or mine land in Appalachia. And so um, we have a small grant from them to help us set this section of our farm up. But what that section looks like is we have rows of medicinal trees and shrubs. So for us, that's elderberries, roses, and raspberries. Um, medicinally, you harvest the leaves for raspberries for tea. And then in between each of those rows, we have raised beds that are in the alleys. Um, that's why it's called alley cropping, the alleys between the trees. And so those raised beds have perennial herbs. Um, and so we have maybe 30 species of perennial herbs right now. Um, a good chunk of them are native herbs, um, native plants, and, and some of them are not. Um, but it's, it's really nice and unique system, I think, because almost everything we're growing is perennial. Um, and so we put a lot of care into like establishing everything and getting everything it needs to be there for a long time. And then we don't have to mess with like flipping beds and planting a whole bunch of things back to back throughout the season. Um, there's a lot of other work that makes up for that because processing herbs is really labor intensive, but um, it's nice to kind of just um, oversee the plants and care for them and let them do their own thing and not have to manage them so intensely. But anyways, it's really beautiful because most of the herbs we're growing are flowers. Um, and because a lot of them are native, they just, they grow so fast and they just get really lush, um, and beautiful. And a lot of the herbs, um, 
have a really nice smell to them too. Like that's the reason that they're medicinal or that people use them for cooking or something like that. And so just standing out in our field when the wind blows, you can smell so many different um, really interesting things. And that makes harvesting them really nice too. Yeah, that sounds super dreamy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's really hard too, and like all the horrible blood, sweat, and tears of farming are a part of it. But um, the the smells and sights and everything—you know, there's tons of bees and flies and butterflies and stuff just all over the place too. And so that makes it um, worth it. I feel like for the hard part. Mm-hmm. Are you? So you said you had the chickens and ducks. Are you selling your eggs? Are those mostly for eggs or for meat or both? Um, we just raise them for eggs. And right now we, um, so something kind of interesting about this farm that we have is that it's, we've learned a lot of history about it. And it was, um, the bottoms were all farmed in tobacco. The bottoms all the way down this, this part of the river were all in tobacco. But before that, um, the owners, had a roadside stand where they sold coal. So there's like a coal tipple down the road from us. And in front of our farm, we're kind of on a big road. There's a big kind of three-sided shed that they would fill up with coal. I promise this has to do with the eggs. (laughs) And then next to that, there's this tiny little building. And what you would do is you would drive up and you'd fill up your truck or your buckets or whatever with coal from the shed and then you would drive forward and there's this giant scale in the ground um, and it would weigh how much coal you had and then somebody would be inside this little building to ring you out Um, and so we still have all that stuff here and we're slowly trying to refurbish it to be a roadside stand um, for the things that we have and so right now that just looks like selling our eggs Um, so we just have a little sign and a you know refrigerator and it's a self-serve system um, to buy chicken and duck eggs and we have mostly ducks um, because I really love them they're so funny and cute but they're also um, I think they are a lot easier to manage than chickens for a lot of reasons I could talk all day about it but (laughs) they work really well especially in our our system because they um we let them into the area that we're farming and they kind of go down the alleys where there's um there's some like grass sections on either side of our herb beds before you get to the trees and they just cruise down there you know and forage and sometimes they go in the beds but they don't like eat any of our plants or anything like that so um, it works together really nice but anyways It's been hard to convince people to eat duck eggs, though. We've been slowly working on people. We give away a lot of eggs to try to get people to try them and come back and buy some. Um, But, yeah, that's how we've been selling our eggs right now. Have you you had much success in in, uh, people that sampled the duck eggs coming back? Yeah, we've had some, some good success. I've been really surprised how many folks didn't know that you could eat duck eggs. Like, we um, were delivering some of our eggs actually to Lexington before, and I 
assumed we'd have more problems with that and that, you know, people more rarely would be used to having ducks. Um, but we've had a lot of folks that just didn't know you could eat duck eggs, and so we just had to get them to try them. But there's definitely another um, segment of people that are just, they've had them and they don't like them, and so <laughs> they won't eat them. And they've encouraged us to buy more chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. The, the chickens and ducks are something I just really like having animals, and they're kind of low-maintenance compared to other animals, I feel like, and so that's what motiva- motivated me to get them. But it's been a nice thing so far here because um, we there's not a huge demand for the herbs and things that we're producing locally. And part of what motivates me to be a farmer and also to be where I am is that like I want to be a part of my community and I want to be serving people and um, you know the grocery stores that we have here the produce is awful it's awful Um, and we do have a tiny farmers market but it's new and it's not very big and so like people having access to like fresh food and stuff is um, a challenge I think and so I, I'm motivated to have more birds um, just so we can get eggs to people because people have been so excited. Um, I think the, the demographics here, there's a lot of older folks that I think probably either had poultry um, and they don't anymore or you know their neighbors did. And so we've had a lot of older folks stop by and say, you know, there used to be so many egg stands like this and I don't know anyone that is doing it now, and so they've been really excited to, to find fresh eggs, um, which feels really good. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm motivated to get more birds, even if it's not necessarily the most lucrative thing for us to do, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting that you prefer ducks, because I've heard so many people talking trash about ducks. <laughs> oh my gosh, I could talk for an hour about it maybe we should do another whole episode that's duck themed (laughs) i'm serious (laughs) Uh, i'll say i gotta say one tiny thing about ducks i'm ready okay so everyone eats chicken eggs right and that's because that's what's mostly available there are differences between eggs and everything but chickens are more um you can factory farm them, basically. And ducks, you can't, because ducks basically need twice as much space since they don't use vertical space like chickens do. And ducks are really messy and they need water. So they just don't make sense to have a confinement. And so anyways, that has set this whole trajectory where everyone has chickens, chicken eggs wet at the store and everything like that. Um, but what I could talk to you for an hour about is how I think that ducks actually have a lot of things about them that make them a better fit for small farms um, and homesteaders and things like that and kind of are better maybe for like climate resiliency and things like that. Um, Yeah, so I'm always trying to convince people to get ducks. Well, (laughs) just to lean into your duck passion for a minute, (laughs) um, what, what do you think makes them better for small farms? Yeah. Um... One is that they they are kind of more resilient in a lot of ways. 
they're more resilient to uh, heat and cold. So we have like a coop for our ducks and our chickens together, and there's like this whole space in it that's meant for the ducks, but the ducks sleep in a run attached to it. Even if it's like sleeting or snowing or whatever temperature it is outside, they won't even sleep under the covered part of it. They just get hailed on and covered in snow and they seem perfectly fine. Um, and then when it's really hot outside too, they they definitely get hot, but they, they seem to spend more time out in the sun than the chickens do. The chickens are kind of hiding more. Um, I think they're also more resilient to predators, which I don't fully understand because the ducks are really slow and it seems like they would be easy to catch, but I guess it depends on the predators you have, but since they, they're usually a lot fatter than chickens, um, they, you don't have a lot of problems with aerial predators like hawks or something coming and grabbing them. Um, it's mostly nighttime things that you want to worry about. Um, they also, their social behaviors are really different. So if you've had chickens, you know that if you have a weak chicken, a lot of times the other chickens will peck it to death or ostracize it or something like that. And they're always fighting to be, you know, change the pecking order. And ducks, um, at least the kinds that we have, they don't have a hierarchy. And so they're really chill. They don't fight. You can just introduce new ducks and it's totally fine. If one of them gets hurt, they actually kind of look out for it and we'll make sure that it doesn't fall behind. Um, yeah, they also lay more eggs. They're more resistant to disease. I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have me convinced. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> They're also adorable. They're so funny. Well, I think so, too. And I I live in the city, and I don't think we're allowed to have them. But I've mm. tried to talk yeah. several housemates into letting me get them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll have to uh, play them the spiel that you just gave. Tell me more about how you feel medicinal herbs could could um, replace tobacco a little bit. Yeah. So my understanding of the reason that tobacco was a good fit for, like, eastern Kentucky specifically is because, you know, we're, there's a lot of hilly mountainside here, and most, like, lands, there's not a lot of good farmland. Um the only flatland is either on ridgetops where the soil's not that great or you might not even be able to get to it, or you have the bottomland on um, rivers, which is where our farm is, um, which is really great soil. You know, it's challenging being in a floodplain too, but um, it's usually not a lot of space. So you have to be able to grow something that is valuable enough that you can make it, you know, on a small piece of land and tobacco could do that. Um, The other thing is that tobacco, you can process and dry it and store it and then sell it somewhere outside of the region. And that kind of gets back to what I was saying with my issues with growing vegetables, is that there's not big farmer's markets where I am and there's not an abundance of restaurants or, you know, food buyers and things like that. And so it's hard to, it would be hard to have something that's really perishable. Um, 
which whenever I say this, I just always want to add that. I don't think there's enough people in Eastern Kentucky growing vegetables and things like that. So that, that needs to happen too. But as far as kind of replacing what's been lost by tobacco, um, something that's more similar, I think, would be medicinal herbs. And that's because a lot of them are pretty high value. Um, it's, it's unlikely you could just grow one thing, you know, and just like you would with tobacco. And, but, and then the other thing is that you can process and dry them because you don't need a lot of specialized equipment or anything like that. And then you can, you know, sell them somewhere outside the region. So I think that herbs kind of fit the, the topography, but it also is a kind of skill set and equipment that people have. It could be not quite not so different, I guess, from from growing tobacco. Um, I'll add that our farm we kind of have it set up more like a a market garden for herbs, and that if we grow really high quality, organic specialty medicinal herbs and a diversity of them, and that works with the business model that we're using, but that's probably not like what most people do. Um, for it to be more synonymous with tobacco, it would need to be a couple of herbs that you grow kind of on a larger scale and process and dry them and, you know, bulk sell them to like a supplement company or something like that. Um, but I think there's a lot of possibilities for doing that really sustainably, which is, um, something that I really care about and, you know, tobacco folks use a lot of sites to grow tobacco. Um, and so with growing some of these even like native plants, um, or plants that are less prone to insects or fungus or things like that, um, there's a possibility of really cutting down on on how many um, chemicals and things you would have to use to grow them too. Yeah. Man, you need to be a, a saleswoman for <laughs> something. <laughs> Maybe ducks and herbs. I guess you're already on it. <laughs> I am a saleswoman for those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, how are you guys processing? You said you're living in an RV. Yeah. Um, that's been really challenging. Um, we, there is um, there's an old house on the property um, that needs a lot of work and we're not going to fix it up. But what we have done is kind of sectioned part of it off completely from the rest of the house and you know, cleaned it and everything and turned it into um like a drying room. So it's full of drying racks. And right now we use like a commercial dehumidifier and big commercial fans. And we dry everything in there. Um, and then we just, we do like the garbling, which is where you de-stem the herbs once they're dry. We do that outside. And then for we make some value-added products that we can't do at home, and so we um, rent commercial kitchen space to do that. Um, 
but we are, this is kind of our temporary setup. We're, we um, got a small scale farm grant from Kentucky State to make a larger drying facility. And so we're working on that right now, actually turning the barn into a drying space. And we're gonna be installing solar panels on it so that all of the, um, you know, dehumidifiers or fans or whatever, we can use solar power to do that because that's a really big expense. Um, and then also kind of our, our philosophy for farming is we're trying not to set ourselves up um, so that we are really um, tied down using fossil fuels going forward. So we, we use that some right now, um, but every step that we take to build the business and develop the farm, we try to wean off of them, I guess, and use alternative things. Do you guys have to deal with any flooding issues being so close to the river? Did you say flooding issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll see. We haven't been there here that long. But our farmland, basically, if it floods, the city of Babyville floods, which has happened. So it could definitely happen, um, and it surely will. But we have kind of a next to the river, we have this big um, – like a lower bank type thing that it seems from talking to folks and then from this year, every spring it fills up with water. Um, And so that's kind of scary because it's right by where we live and stuff. So going forward where I said we live in an RV and we eventually are going to try to build a little cabin or something and we're going to build it on stilts. Um, But beyond that, we have... You know, we haven't had flooding issues so far. We do have our beds set up that they're raised and there's trenches in between them. Um, So in the spring, you know, when we got a lot, a lot of rain here, um, that was really helpful to have that kind of drainage. Um, But, yeah, that's about it so far. Cool. That's good to hear. I heard some horror stories coming from Harlan County um, this past spring. So I, I wasn't sure if the same issues were affecting y'all. Yeah, it seems like, it kind of seems like we're in this little sweet spot, actually, where there's like a small town on either side of us that I think experience a lot more flooding, and it just happens where we are that it's not as frequent, at least. Mm-hmm. You need to knock on some wood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so you mentioned some 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 hard days. Do you know what your hardest day farming that you can think of was? You know, the the hardest one for me, which has been like with our animals, losing animals. Um, we're on a road and. I'll spare you the details, but basically a whole bunch of our ducks got run over and somebody did it on purpose. No. Um, Yeah, somebody, like, saw it happen. And so that was horrible. Um, And 
actually, it's mostly just been kind of stuff like that, which isn't necessarily just farming, but just kind of rural life. Um, you like had two cats and one of them got eaten by a coyote and the other one got a tick disease and died. And so for me, those, those have been really the hardest things. Um, beyond that, I'm not sure I can think of like single days that have been really hard, you know, um, more than the other ones, but, you know, we are just starting out and the stuff that we're doing, there's not like a ton of great resources on it. And so it's honestly just been really hard, like every day. Um, and it hasn't been until maybe the last couple of weeks actually that like I can really look around like with confidence and see everything has really come together. Um, yeah, it's just, it has been really hard. A roller coaster of emotions, definitely. Well, what's kept you going through all the, all the really hard days? Uh, a lot of things. I think, like, my ultimate kind of motivation is that I just feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I feel very at home when I'm outside and using my hands and I just, I feel reassured um, every time that I actually start doing that, um, you know, physically doing the farming and not thinking about it or planning or whatever. And I also, um, like a big part of like, living here and the farm and everything it's been like a journey I think for me to um reconnect to the land um like I grew up in the suburbs and I always did things outside and stuff like that um and I've always like kind of been wild and like to get dirty and stuff like that but it's there's just been this hole in me I feel like um and so I'm I'm healing that I think by really connecting with the land and and really putting down roots um, in one place. I've spent a lot of my adult life traveling and things, which was amazing, but it feels good to put down roots. Um, so I think, like, really those are all my deepest motivations. But I also, I think a lot about the other folks in the kind of herbal space um, and I feel like what I'm doing is really appreciated by herbalists and herbal product makers who, um, like I said, there's not a lot of people growing these plants in the United States. I'm not sure if I said that, but um, in the U.S., we import something like 70% of the herbs that we use. They're mostly grown in Eastern Europe. and. There are some folks growing them here, but there's really not a lot of people in the Southeast. Um, and so we actually sell fresh herbs too. We, like, we ship fresh herbs to people, which seems ridiculous, but that's like how few people are growing some of these things that we're growing. Um, and anyways, all of, the, all of our customers are just so appreciative. Um, and they're really appreciative of kind of our philosophy and the way that we grow things too. And I can see their impact on other people, um, you know, whether they are working with um, 
patients or or making you know other products that people use or their educators that are teaching people how to um, make their own medicine and things like that um, and I'm just really inspired by all those people and so that that motivates me a lot too to keep going yeah, that's awesome to be able to have multiple sources of kind of farming fuel, almost. <laughs> yeah. Is your husband helping you on farm, or does he work off farm? Yeah, so he um, he's finishing up graduate school he's remotely. He's here, and so he's doing that, and then the rest of his time he has been working on the farm and doing a lot of more kind of homesteading stuff. Um, so we we have very, like, rustic living situation, and so he's doing a lot to kind of develop things like that. Um, and then I started working full-time off-farm two months ago, maybe, and so he's been doing a lot more of the farm work since then. But um, his background is we actually did the same ecology program for our masters and he has um he has a small business doing web design and computer programming stuff like that too so he does a little bit of everything yeah that's awesome i feel like the diverse revenue streams are never a bad thing right (laughs) yep um is there we're getting close to an hour here so i don't want to take up too much more of your time but Uh is there anything we haven't talked about that you think we should um, I don't know. I feel like I could talk about a lot of things, but I don't know what would be <laughs> of interest <laughs> to your listeners. <laughs> did living in Latin America, how did that inform your farming practice? And what, what areas of Latin America did you live in? So, uh, I spent a good amount of time in Ecuador and Peru. Um, and I also, I studied abroad in Indonesia, and that was actually, it was a, um, with the University of Kentucky, and we were studying agroecology, and so that was actually kind of, before that I wasn't into farming at all. I thought farming was like, I was an environmental science student, and I thought farming had to be like this destructive, horrible thing. Um, and then I went to Indonesia and saw how people were growing things there, and I was like, oh my gosh, like amazing um so many different kinds of systems but a lot that incorporate agroforestry you know like growing your vegetables with your fruit trees and with your timber trees and everything's mixed together and stuff like that um but in like a really informed way like they know what they're doing and anyway so that inspired uh, my partner and I Chris we both um went to Latin America and we worked um, in the Amazon growing peanuts for a little bit and uh, sugar cane and papayas and pineapples. Um, spent some time on some cacao and coffee farms. Um, you know, and everybody had some vegetables, but that wasn't the main thing anywhere that we were. But I think I, I learned a lot about farming. Um, from those things, I guess, especially thinking about trying to incorporate production in every um, 
in every way that we can, you know? So instead of just thinking like, okay, I have this field where I grow this crop or whatever, it's like, how can I grow food or medicine or fiber or whatever, like in every little nook and cranny of my space? Um, and so, you know, I think about that a lot. And then I think because we spend a lot of time in the tropics where it's incredibly challenging to grow uh, a lot of things because it's just so lush, like you just, everything will get covered and, and weeds and bugs and everything so quickly and and it still works. And so I think that in the U.S. we have this kind of obsession with having a really weak, clean looking farm and I would be lying if I said I wasn't obsessed with that too because I definitely like I want things to look nice but I think that the tropical farms that I spent time on in Latin America kind of showed me that things can be a little bit more wild and weedy I guess um, and still be like almost or just as productive um, as other systems and so I, I try to keep that in mind and then lastly just like thinking about diversity um, incorporating different layers into the farm you know not just growing annuals but perennials and perennial shrubs and you know growing things that I probably won't even be here to harvest um, and that's something that's really important to us is kind of that diversity and trying to develop like a whole ecosystem you know um and so yeah latin america has really inspired me i guess in those ways yeah it sounds like you're really focused on a like land stewardship form of farming instead of only being focused on production or um the income that you can make from that land yeah it's it's tough to strike the balance between those things, but, you know, I feel like you can't really have one without the other for it to be, like, a long-term sustainable thing, and that's what we're going for, so um, we're trying. We have a lot to learn, but we're trying to think about both of those things all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, if people want to support your farming work or read more about what you're doing maybe do you have social media or website how can people find you so we have a website it is among the oaks farmstead.com and there you can read about the farm and we also we do a um, quarterly herbal csa so you can sign up for there um, and we have our herbal products and bulk herbs there and stuff too and then we also um, pretty active on our Instagram. That's at Among the Oaks Farm. All right, y'all. So Sarah Barney and I talked about two months ago. <laughs> it's a lot in the world has changed since then. And so I just thought we'd give her a call and get some updates about what's going on in her farm and catch any things that we had missed in her original interview. Sarah, thanks for being back. Yeah, I'm happy to chat again. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that we wanted to dive a little bit more into is 
what exactly you're growing and why you're growing it. Yeah. So this is something, you know, when I tell people that I'm growing herbs, they usually assume that I'm growing hemp or something like that or culinary herbs, things like parsley and dill. But yeah, I'd like to elaborate a little on some of the things we're growing. You'll probably heard of some of them and maybe not some of the others. Some of the main things that I grow are mint, like peppermint, catnip, and lemon balm, as well as some of the non-aromatic mints, things like motherwort. Um, I also grow St. John's wort and marshmallow, um, which you harvest the roots for marshmallow. St. John's wort, you harvest the flowers and the unopened buds. I also grow a lot of culinary herbs, but specifically the ones that are people tend to use medicinally. So things like rosemary and oregano and thyme. Uh, I also grow a lot of people or tulsi, um, which is like a super aromatic, interesting basil. Lots of native plants like purple coneflower, um, which is an echinacea. I grow blue vervain. Ashwagandha is another one that is from India. That's one that we harvest the roots for. And I grow a lot of spinning nettle, which is one that folks around here think is really funny because uh, most people hate it <laughs> because they just know it as the thing in the woods that gives them. But it's actually a super um, nutritious plant. And a lot of folks make tea with that. So the kind of thing that drives the plants that we grow is that we, um, I make a lot of teas. That's the main kind of value-added product that I make and sell. And so I grow a lot of plants that people drink in tea, and then I can grow um, in large quantities and dry. So that would be the things like the lemon balm and the mint and the Healthy. Um, I also grow a lot of chamomile and calendula flowers. Those I both use in tea as well. Um, and then most of the other things that I grow are things that herbalists look to use when they're fresh. So um, blue vervain, for example, is one that is a native plant, and some folks will wildcraft it, so they will find it wild and harvest it, but it's not super common or widespread, but it's really commonly used in Western herbalism practices. And so the model that we're using is grow not just small amounts of a large diversity of plants so that we can cater most directly to herbalists. Herbalists are oftentimes using small amounts of plants to make their own um, medicine and but they want a wide variety of things. So we hope to basically have like a one-stop shop where an herbalist could, you know, come and get a half pound, you know, to three pounds or something of like 10 different herbs at one time. And that's kind of model that we're using, I guess, which is really interesting. And there's lots of pros and cons to it. One of the cons is that it takes a lot of networking and marketing to actually identify all of the herbalists and product makers that would actually use these things. Um, but I find it really fulfilling to, to use this model because I get to um, 
work with people that really, really care about plants versus like wholesaling um, large amounts of herbs to a supplement company, I guess, is kind of the alternative model for most herbs. I've heard some negative things about Mountain Rose Herbs, for example. Are they one of those companies that are just buying from a lot of different small farmers and putting things together? Do you know much about that situation? Yeah. So they do a mix of things. There's a lot of, um, like, what I would call herb distributors. Rose Herbs is one of them. Um, if you go to, like, a Whole Foods or any kind of bulk, like, health food store and you see bulk herbs, those are usually Frontier Herbs is the company. Um, and there's a lot of different ones like that. They're mostly importing herbs. Um, a lot of them are from Eastern Europe, but you know, depending on what it is, they come from all over the world. And the typical model is that they're grown kind of like hay so on a large scale um, in a, like a monocrop. Somebody will come in with mechanized equipment and cut everything down and then let it dry place in the sun like you would with hay. Then after that, plants are stored oftentimes for quite a long time before they actually are sold to like mountain rose herbs, for example. And then when you, the consumer, buy it from mountain rose herbs, you don't really know how long they've had it either. There's a lot of issues with handling and drying herbs um, in that manner. They lose a lot of their potency, their flavor, their color, their smell, and so it's definitely a lower quality product. Um, I will say, you know, with, I don't want to just dog on these companies because they serve a very crucial role and they have very accessible herbs. Um, they're very affordable. You know, they still, like, they're not total crap. They still have flavor and, you know, medicinal properties and things like that. But it's just, um, it's not the highest quality, I guess, that you could get. Um, and so we try to do the opposite where we're making a growing the highest kind of potency and quality that we can and, you know, going above and beyond in the handling and the drying steps so that we can preserve as much flavor um, and quality as possible. And that's something that herbalists especially really, really care about. And something else that's kind of interesting and really different, I think, than other farming is that, you know, um, all herbalists are different, but they really care about the plant. And a lot of their work has to do with kind of forging this relationship between plants and people and in order to do that to the best of their ability they want plants that are cared for um that sounds kind of strange but like even if the, the idea is that if somebody really cares about the plants they're working with and they are giving them a lot of attention and trying to be the best stewards of those plants as they can thinking about them as like a product that that will translate into a higher quality medicinal product. There's a lot of, you know, good faith spirituality that goes into that, but it's also really practical. Um, there's been lots of research about 
way in which you grow herbs um, and also comparing like farm grown herbs versus wild grown herbs and looking at like the concentration of some specific chemical in them and plants that you I don't want to say take better care of because actually neglect makes herbs much stronger sometimes but basically the more effort and intention you can put into individual types of plants and really understand them and the better um, quality that the soil is that is oftentimes going to make more potent so yeah I hope that makes sense (laughs) but I think it's also um, beyond like with caring about what is the quality or the state or whatever of their herbs so are usually like more willing to pay a higher price to support a farmer that they um, agree with their kind of farming and stewardship practices, uh, things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it seems not exactly the same, but kind of similar to folks being willing to pay more for um, like organic vegetables. Um, not yeah. that there's like a label on on what you're doing. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, very similar. So when you're talking about herbalism, I have my own idea about what that means. But can you talk a little bit about, so people are getting these herbs from you and they're making teas. Like what's the, are people coming them to them for ailments? Like what's the goal there? There's a, a lot of things wrapped up into that. The way that I see herbalism is, is mostly about an intentional relationship building between humans and plants and people take many different approaches to that so people that try to really study like the like human physiology and like medical pharmacology and you know isolate constituents and plants that they think are going to affect some specific thing in the body to make a medicine right and that is kind of like the, it's really similar um, model as like our Western medicine system, um, but they're just trying to use plants instead of something synthetic. So that's like one avenue. Um, and it, there's this whole continuum basically where you go from that on one end to the other end, which is people that their practice doesn't even involve necessarily consuming the plants, but it's more about um, spending time with them and seeing what they can learn from individual types of plants. And then there's all kinds of things in between um, as far as consuming herbs for um, kind of nutritional properties to more specific medicinal properties and then also just the idea of like diversifying the diet and incorporating different unique plants into like foods that you eat all the time like uh, salt or a spice blend or um, a honey or something like that people's herbs just to kind of diversify, I guess, their, their diet in that way. Um, but from my perspective, you know, there's a lot of uh, legal things around this kind of stuff. Um, 
And so I, I am not allowed to actually talk about or advertise like medicinal qualities of plants at all, even if they're very well studied. Um, so I basically grow the plants and I, um, I try to make tea blends that are um, specific to supporting certain body systems and things like that, but um, I'm not even allowed to like advertise them as that. It's more that you just have to know um, about how people use plants, which that is the most challenging thing about growing herbs is like trotting that line of wanting to educate consumers, um, but still maintaining this legal status that you have to maintain. Yeah, that could be tricky if you're growing something for a specific purpose and then can't actually say the purpose. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's really complicated. (laughs) So how are you, you've talked a little bit about it, but you mentioned like growing to a certain standard and I feel like with herbs, there's probably not, like, an industry-wide standard, or is there? There definitely is an industry standard, at least from, like, supplement companies. And, you know, are one of the biggest buyers of bulk dried herbs. And they definitely have standards about how you, um, the shape and size of the final plant once you, um, process it, so it's called, like, cut and snip, like, the typical size of the basically tea, you know, flakes you would see if you bought bulk herbs. Um, the supplement companies also, if they're really big, they will oftentimes ask for a, like, chemical analysis of the plant to make sure that the medicinal constituent that they're looking for is um, at a high enough threshold. Um, and then they'll also do lab testing for like microbial activity and stuff like that in the finished product. Um, that, since we currently aren't selling like herbs at that scale to supplement companies, those aren't the standards that we use. Um, the standards that we use are mostly about how you can perceive the plant with your senses. Um, so the, the smell. They need to have a really, really strong smell. Um, the color of them is, needs to be as similar to the living plant as possible. And the, the be like as similar to the fresh plant as possible. Um, and those things sound kind of obvious maybe, but it's really interesting. Like if you went to a store right now and you bought some bulk herbs, you bought like five different kinds of bulk herbs they are all like green and you didn't label them and you tried to identify them based on like color and smell a couple of months later it's actually incredibly difficult to do um because they oftentimes like all become this same drab green color and they don't have like a really strong smell anymore and so um most of those things are controlled by the way in which you dry herbs um, and so we use very um, a lot of control I guess in drying them in order to get them to be yeah it's basically similar to the living plant as to the to the dry plant 
um, sells fresh plants, and kind of the standard with that is, is similar in that you just want the plant to look and smell um, and taste really good. And, you know, some plants, like, for example, it doesn't taste good at all, and um, it's really bitter. But you can actually tell, like, when you have the fresh plant in your hand and you kind of squeeze it or maybe you cut it open, um, the smell that comes out of it, you can tell how bitter that plant is kind of before you even taste it. Um, and then you could also taste it and see how bitter is it. And in blue vervain, the bitterness is one of the constituents that people are looking for. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that those kind of um, senses, you know, clues that we can get with using our senses. Those are the, the main standards that we use, I guess. And then you have a workshop coming up on October 11th. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I'll start by saying that when I started growing herbs and really talking to people about it, um, I have met so many people that are really excited about this stuff, especially because um, Kentucky doesn't have a super active herbalism community in present day. And we're surrounded by other states that have very active herbal communities. And so I think there's a lot of people here that are interested in learning more about plants and identifying wild plants and things like that, but also like how to be more self-sufficient in making their own remedies and other like interesting foods and stuff like that. Um, and so I've met a lot of people that are interested in this stuff, and I've also met a lot of other young farmers and kind of entrepreneurs that are in a similar place that I'm in. And I found that like there really needs to be more community amongst these people, especially because what I was saying before about how growing plants or making products with plants, like it's really difficult to um, educate people and make sure that you're doing everything legally and like there's a whole thing there. Um, but there's so many rules and so much to know and stuff like that that I really feel like people that are interested in this need to come together and try to figure things out together and not have to individually, um, you know, go through all of the permitting and label approval and, like, learning how to grow plants that there's actually not that much information about how to grow them commercially. Um, you know, something like lemon balm that is really common, you um, look up about it and you can easily see, like, how to grow it in your garden. But it's really hard to find information about how to grow it, like, at a larger scale. So anyways, um, have really this pull to, that I want more community myself, like, amongst like-minded farmers and stuff like that. But I recognize it in other people. And so I'm trying to, along with some other collaborators, put together events and spaces where people can get to know each other better and um, learn from each other and also to build the herbal market, I guess. So um, I guess almost, yeah, like next week, Sunday, October 11th, um, myself and some of my collaborators are hosting a event that is called Goldenrod Gathering, and it's 
and herbal skincare and market. And so we have a clinical herbalist who's going to be leading a plant walk, which is where she'll go. It's at her um, land in Berea. Take everyone in the meadows and her garden and introduce them to plants and have identified them and talk about some of their um, uses. And then we have another um, and herb grower who's going to be teaching a workshop on medicine making, doing some demonstrations. And then after that, we're having kind of like a social and all socially distanced and outside and everything. But we'll have a little market where we have different people that are growing herbs or mushrooms or selling teas and things like that. I'm going to be leading this kind of activity where folks can make their own um, incense, basically. Like they'll wrap dried plants in a bundle that they can burn. Um, and so that will all be half time and folks can get to know each other. And, um, yeah. And so I'm really excited about it. And... I have some things in the work to do more things like this um, next year also. So, uh, yeah, very exciting. Yeah, that's so exciting. Cool. Well, if folks want to find more information about that workshop, can they look on your Instagram or is there an event page? Yeah, um, I guess my Instagram or my Facebook right now, and I should probably stick it on my website as well, but it's not there yet. (laughs) Okay. And those will be linked in the show notes for this episode. Do you want to talk a little bit about what shipping fresh herbs looks like? Besides us making, like, teas and other products and selling herbs to folks locally, um, another large part of our business is mailing fresh herbs to folks all over the country, which seems ridiculous, and it feels ridiculous every time I do it, honestly, because a lot of things I'm growing grow well all over the place, and so folks could grow these plants where they are. Um, but they're just, the reality is there aren't very many herb farmers, and there definitely aren't very many herb farmers in the southeast. Um, most of the herb farms in the country are in the northwest, in the Northeast, and so, and then some in, like, California as well. Because of that, like, we get tons of inquiries from people all over the South that find herbs as locally as they can, and we're actually, like, the closest thing to them. And so, um, to do that, it's taken a lot of trial and error this year, and I'm figuring it out, but we basically harvest fresh herbs to order. Um, folks usually let us know earlier in the season what they want, and then once that plant is ready or the, uh, they'll want, like, a whole bunch of different things, then we harvest them um, right before the post office closes, and it's always, like, kind of a mad rush to get it all packed up. We pack everything in papers that um, the herbs will kind of wilt and start to dry a little bit. Um some people will use plastic and ice packs, which um, can work, especially with short distances. But, you know, if the plants have a lot of moisture on them, they're more likely to rot. And so we just try to keep them as dry as possible. Um, so we just, you know, wrap them in paper in a big box. And our customers usually pay for overnight shipping. 
is more expensive than the herbs themselves. And then, yeah, we drop them off right before the post office closes so that they have the least amount of time that they have been harvested before they get to the, uh, the customer. Um, and this is something that a good amount of herb farms do, um, and I don't want to keep doing it, but part of our goal with doing this like workshop with the market and trying to build the herbal community more is to be able to, to build the local market enough and create a space where we can mostly cater to folks in Kentucky who can come to one place, you know, um, once a month or something like that to an herb market and they can just get all the herbs they need. Um, easier for us to having to, to ship things overnight. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Thank you, Shelby. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sarah. If you're listening to this, you've already missed out on Sarah's Fall Equinox box of herbal goodies. But be sure to follow her on Instagram at Among the Oaks Farm to see lots of dreamy farm photos and stay up to date with the farm offerings. You can also check out their website at www.amongtheoaksfarmstead.com. And while you're online, you could go and follow Community Farm Alliance on Instagram at farmalliancekyk. Are you ready to vote on November 3rd? You can visit GoVoteKY.org to learn more. Next month, we'll be hearing from Mr. Kentucky Dogs, that's D-A-W-G-S, himself, David Neville. We talked about everything from pig wrangling to COVID forcing a marketing shift. This month, we have Community Farm Alliance's communications director, Maggie Smith, here to give us an update about what we've been up to. Hey, folks. It has been such a busy season for us. We have been working hard to meet the needs that are happening across our states around food and farm systems. A few of those include gearing up for next year. So 2021 is right around the corner. We have about a quarter left of 2020 and we are ready to put some foundational work into place so that we can serve Kentucky farmers and eaters even better next year. One of the ways that we are looking forward to doing this is through our annual meeting that will happen this December. Typically our annual meeting is in person and is the first weekend in December. We can't do that this year, so it's gonna be virtual, but we are still trying to figure out fun ways for folks to be a part of it and still get the rich, amazing network opportunities that the time together usually provides. One of the other things is that we really use the annual meeting as a place for CFA members, friends, and colleagues and leaders to engage with what is going to happen for our organization in the coming year. If you have ideas for the 2020 CFA annual meeting, please feel free to reach out to me at Maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E, at CFAKY.org, or Kelsey Voigt, our organizing director, at Kelsey, K-E-L-S-E-Y, at CFAKY.org. Both of us would love to hear from you and figure out how to incorporate what you really think CFA should be doing into the annual meeting. Thanks, Maggie. Be sure to find Breaking Beans podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Give us a follow and leave a review to help other folks find us. Our thanks to Stoveleg Media, WMMT, and Apple Shop 
for the radio show and podcast support. To Brett Ratliff for the tunes, and to you for listening. Be safe out there, y'all. Thank you.